Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome back to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. My name is Steve Roost and every week we'll be bringing you the best guests and interviews with the people shaping the health technology landscape in the UK and beyond. I'm a CEO and founder in the health tech industry myself. I have nearly 20 years of scaling venture-backed technology companies across the world and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. To keep up to date with the show, please follow us on at Health Tech Hour on Twitter and Instagram, and also make sure you follow UK Health Radio, which is at UK Health Radio. So uh, as an introduction to my next guest, who I'm extremely happy to have on our Christmas show, um, for those of you watching this on YouTube, you'll see that I'm wearing a lovely Santa hat, and Peter, my guest, is wearing a quite phenomenal Christmas jumper with a, with a light-up Santa Claus on it, which is excellent. Um, so uh, my current company, Vital Science Solutions, has developed a digital platform called PocDoc, which allows anyone with a smartphone to take uh, to, to give themselves a blood test for a range of major diseases using just their smartphone. This is a very nice introduction to Peter because in, in the interest of full disclosure, Peter is an investor in our company and actually uh, on our board, uh, which we're extremely happy about. So Peter, Peter Cowley, who is going to be speaking in a second, is, I would imagine, one of the most prolific angel investors in the UK. He is the owner and founder of investedinvestor.com. He is an author, multi-time author. He has mentored hundreds of startups, some in the health tech space, some not in the health tech space. And uh, in addition to that, he is a phenomenal entrepreneur himself. So Peter, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Yes, hello. Thanks, thanks for the introduction. I should just add, there is another connection as well. Your wife was at my first wedding when she was nine months old. I heard that. <laughs> I did hear that. Quite unusual. That does. I, I know. <laughs> I've heard that story many a time because my wife takes it as a personal um, affront that she was kept in the car and not allowed in the pub. Yeah, so if anybody knew the, the landlord of the place that we had our, our wedding meal, they'd understand why, but that's a very long story and a very long time ago, of course. Yeah, well. yeah. Um, although, you know, I'm not sure my wife would welcome the, the, us naming the number of years ago that that was when she was nine months old in the car. Yeah, okay. Um, but yes, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of connections. So how are you at the moment? Are you, which tier are you in? What are the restrictions? Yeah, so we're, we're, I'm in Cambridge, I live in Cambridge. Um, I was brought up in Yorkshire in Hull and came to Cambridge University obviously a long time ago um, and left and then went to live in London and then Bavaria and back and brought the kids up in Stamford and Lincolnshire. Okay. And I came back to Cambridge about 15, 17 years ago. So yeah, this is tier two, which means oh, wow. I've actually been, we had a, this help out to eat out in the summer and I've sort of indirectly been doing that recently because I worked out last night, I've been out to eat nine times in nine days. Um, wow, that's some kind of record. Mostly work, I will say, so okay. I will keep you within the rules where I could. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so it's very different. I've got a close friend who's literally 200 metres between uh, in tier four from tier two, which is really incredible. yeah. So when he goes out cycling, he may well sort of accidentally end up in tier two. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, 
I, don't, I haven't I haven't checked, but are there, is there an easy sort of technology piece of technology or an app to check where you're moving between? No, no, or is it very, no, very it's really not. It's, there has to be boundary, obviously, and it can't always be a river. In this case, his boundary is one side of the streets tier two, and one side's tier four, and that will be happening all over the country. There are all kinds of you know, there's nothing one can do about that. So uh, you know, it's, it's based on county boundaries generally, and right. therefore, uh, um, and that's the way it is. So yeah, you know. I'm sure people are not behaving quite as they should, but the point is, you know, the more they can, they can behave, the less likely the spread will, will be. Yeah. Good. Well, look, thanks for coming on the show for the Christmas show. Um, the, the format of the show, which, you know, based off of one show, this is show number two. We stuck to it reasonably well in show number one with Bridget Bard, which was a great show, talking to her as the founder of Bioshore and the world's first developer of an HIV self-test and the world's first developer of a COVID-19 self-test, which was super interesting. Um, so the show, the first bit of the show is origins, how you got to where you are, sort of your, your sort of path, I guess. Then the, the middle bit is around what you're doing and specifically with you, I think it's going to be really interesting for our listeners to, to hear about investments that you've made in the health tech space, your view on health tech from an investor perspective, but also your experience having mentored, I mean, what, literally hundreds of companies now um, and entrepreneurs on their journey and as to why there is a difference. I mean, as a, as a health tech founder and an entrepreneur myself, I, I perceive there to be a, a difference between health tech and other forms of, of, of tech that people are, you know, more familiar with, you know, sort of startup life. And then the final piece is around um, your thoughts about the future. And we can kick around a few topics of the day that, that may relate to COVID. <laughs> Hopefully we can try and find something that isn't related to COVID to talk about, to, every, to, to kind of freshen it up for everyone listening. So um, let's start there. So what, what, how did you, I mean, you've been in, well, you were an entrepreneur first and then you were an investor, but how, how far back would you like to go in terms of where, where you feel like your journey to where you are now began? Yes, yeah, I, I sort of class myself as an entrepreneur, actually, because I've still got a couple of business, the tech business and the publishing business, but they're both lifestyle businesses, whereas over the years I've, I've scaled businesses. Which what, um, how would you, for, for the listeners at home, how would you describe a lifestyle business? One where, well, <laughs> there's some very big lifestyle businesses. It could be argued Richard Branson's Empire is a lifestyle business. Although, um, <laughs> <laughs> although it's quoted, obviously. Um, a lifestyle business, I, I, I doubt there's a natural definition, but as far as an angel is concerned, I, we invest in businesses that are going to scale rapidly. And we can probably, in many cases, force them to overscale and, and maybe to failure, which is something that's, because uh, there is a, it's, it's certainly true that the, majority of but the big majority of startups that fail uh, that have internal investment fail because they run out of cash and why do they need the cash it's because they haven't got enough customers and what is paying the bills it's the investors so if the investors stop investing the bills don't get paid and it fails so in terms of in, so a company that hasn't got external investments is basically run and controlled by the founders Mm. maybe some help from the bank and so in principle that is a lifestyle business because they can run it as their own lifestyle so it's about get businesses that are uh, angel invested that become lifestyle business and that's something we have to to watch and avoid because we want to get out at some point so let okay so let's just break that down because people listening may not necessarily be so familiar with these the concepts that you're talking about but but really in the one instance if it's a lifestyle business it means that the founders the people that started the business can run it how they want to because there's 
there, there, there may not, there is no requirement for them to seek external capital. Well, there's no pressure from external capital that's come in. Right. That way around. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, so, so, so there's nothing wrong with the lifestyle business. Of the 5.8 million businesses in the UK, probably 5.6 or 7 million are, or you know, except for a few hundred thousand of them, are lifestyle businesses. And right. I, you know, and, and, and this should never be regarded as a negative thing. It sounds negative, but it's not. You know, whether it's the local shop or it's the graphic design agency or or it's a company that's you know got two thousand people somewhere. No, don't take that negatively. But it isn't the sort of thing that angel investors or any investors want to get into because we want growth so so we can have decent returns, which will offset all the other failures. Yeah, because it's a portfolio. Yeah, so I interrupted the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's talk about (laughs) immediately to where you are. Yeah, so to go back to, uh, I won't go back into the past, but engineering, computer science, a uh, bit of corporate life, which I think is very important. I will only, well, not only, but I almost only will only invest in people, young people who've had some corporate life to understand what people politics are about and processes and everything, rather than just straight out of university. Um, and, and then uh, I went out to Germany, and uh, within a year, the business I joined as an employee had been sold to somebody I didn't want to work for, so I set up my first business back in 1981. Okay. And what, and what was that business? That business was a, as common in common, was basically a copy of the previous business. Okay. It wasn't owned by the big corporate. So they bought it for their own reasons. They, they stopped selling externally. So we took over basing some of the customers, uh, redesigned the tech, was a bit out of date, et cetera. So it was providing user interfaces for industrial, electro, industrial manufacturers. So Bosch and Siemens and BMW, some of the big names, that were doing, using stuff on the shop floor. You know, this is 40 years ago, so technology's moved on a long way since then. Yeah. That sort of thing isn't used any longer. Anyway, so I was a co-founder of that. And then in, back in, in 84, I came back to the UK because we had a kid and things were different, et cetera. Um, uh, instead of CamData, which I still have after 36 years. Yeah, and what does CamData do? CamData's done a lot of things over the years. The, 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 the naming of the company was Camas in Cambridge and Camas in Computer Aid and Manufacturing. Okay. And it morphed ups and downs. It went bust once. I bought it back again. And then I, um, I, I, I sold it to another company. I bought the company. I sold it to I bought one of the competitors. But it's a basically, it's a you know, round numbers. It's about 100,000 euro, 100,000 pound the revenue making profit just doing some stuff in the traffic light industry at the moment. Wow. <laughs> We've all got our own little niches around the place. It's, it's wow. on the website. Um, anyway, so I did that for a while and then I moved into property development and built some houses. So that's where I made my initial capital to get to ancient right. West. Okay. Uh, I, I've done some, I've, I've, over a dozen businesses that I founded or co-founded. Uh, and some in B2C, business to consumer, some business to business, some business yeah. to business to consumer. So I've had lots and lots of experience. Anyway, let's move forward a lot further. Yeah. Oh, just one other thing. I've been involved in the, on the governance of a number of charities, seven different okay. charities, many of which I've been. So I know quite a lot about charities and, and to some extent, social enterprises. Okay. Move forward to about 12 or 13 years ago, I invested in a, a business that I was mentoring the guy who'd done computer science here in Cambridge, and we sold it quite quickly. And during those two and a half years, I, I made 17 times my money. Oh, nice. A small amount of money became a little bit bigger amount of money, obviously, yeah. but, but nothing special, nothing life-changing. And during that process, I found out what an angel was. I thought, I actually really enjoy this, the concept. Yeah. 
helping younger people, of which you, Steve, are obviously an example. You and your wife, yeah, and, we're, we're, and yeah, giving money in which produces a multiple. Now, I, I was not completely naive. I knew that this wouldn't always be the case. I'd get seventeen times my money every time I put it in. Otherwise, sure. <laughs> it couldn't happen. So I, I joined a group called the Cambridge Angels, which is a business angel group here in Cambridge. It was set up about twenty years ago, um, and and that's been so key to my journey because I've learned everything I have from the people who've been doing it before. So just to go back, you were you investing? Were you investing during the first dot com boom and crash? No. Well, after that, I was in. In fact, even after the the Wall Street banking crisis, the financial crisis. Yeah, exactly. So I, I invested in the startup during that period, but the first investment I made that was not that this the one that got me on the journey was in '09. So. Okay. So in that respect, I have not seen a reset, a big reset of values, which we may have time to talk about, which is or probably will be or is happening at the moment. Right, because Got of COVID. Too hot, in, exactly, because of changes, in, in the, both in terms of the process of investing and the macroeconomic effects or global economic effects of what's going to be happening down the line. Okay. Um, so what was it that got you... In what, what was it particularly that, that inspired you? Actually, before we carry on, do you actually have a headset? Because I'm slightly worried about your, your sound levels as, a, as I look at this. Uh, no, I don't. Okay. No. Well, we'll, we'll just... I've been, I've been on this setup now for nine, ten months during Zoom. So I'm Perfect. Sure. I'm sure it's okay. I can show them. <laughs> I hope Station Master Johan can make it work. So what, um, what, 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 what kind of moved you after you did this initial investment what was the business by the way not the name if you don't want to release it but what was the area no i don't know it's called x computing ept computing and it, okay. it, it was a service business to start with morphed into a product business uh, called go test it first customer an interesting story the first customer actually was one of the co-founders who left and suddenly about 20 percent of all their businesses co-founders have left founders or co-founders have left and that's a very painful process, and it was painful. So that was the first learning step. And it morphed, morphed into GoTest It, which was a uh, browser-based testing of software. GoTest yeah. It, so actually web-based long gone. I mean, it was sold to a software company here in Cambridge. Um, so it, that doesn't really matter, apart from something we'll come to later, that I and other angels, busy angels, invest in things we understand, which we'll soon find out. I don't understand as much about health, uh, life sciences or health tech or whatever we're going to call it. So I invested less of those because I'm not a biochemist or genomics expert, etc. So yeah. So, why, 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 just for everyone listening, what, why are angels called angels? Where did that term kind of come it came from? From the middle of the 19th century, when if somebody wants to put a play on, they needed to uh, rent a theatre. This is a big play, you know, that's in, you know, centre of Shaftesbury Avenue or, or mm. in, in New York and Broadway. They needed to rent the theatre a bit beforehand, buy the set, pay the, the cast and everything. So some money needs to go in. So they went out to, you know, people who had money and said, can you lend, not lend, can you buy equity in this production when right. I'll promise inverted commas to pay back times a multiple. So okay. people will put money in and then say the plays a flop and yeah. plays the, after the first night, which does happen, these investors lost everything. Or right. say in the UK it's uh, the mousetrap or something which we've been going for okay. years. <laughs> Obviously these investors, if they still own part of it, have made an absolute massive amount of money. So they're called theatre, well, they're called angels and that became sort of theatre angels 
And the business angels, of which we usually call them angels, term was coined probably in the 70s in California. Okay. Right. Yeah, because there's now, I mean, the, the, these concepts of angels and investors and, you know, startups has just become a much, much greater part of the ongoing discussions in society, I think. The vocabulary is now sort of becoming a lot more sort of normalized. So um, what type of, what, what, would, what would you say the key lessons are that you've taken from your, your world of work or your entrepreneurial experience that, have, you know, lessons, behaviors that you've retained throughout your you know, your, your career and, and all of the different things that you've done? Have there been some consistent things that you recognize that you've, you've always done or that you always try to do? Um, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. Now, well, I've never been asked that before, so I'm not going to... Oh, well. So, um, that, Look at that. I've, you've been in many interviews. Uh, and you, I've asked you something you've never been asked. No, the, the, the question's usually, are, what did you learn as an entrepreneur? What did you learn as an angel investor? And so yeah. on. But to actually say what character or traits, characteristics or traits that I've done all the way through. And there probably isn't anything specific because, you know, I've adapted. I, I spend a lot of time thinking, reflecting on changes. As yeah, you know, even self-improvement. It's a life 4.0 at the moment, which will be some change, and I'm going through that transition at the moment. You know, yeah. a lot of people would call that retirement, but I'm, I'm not really no. trying to enjoy what I'm doing so much. Um, uh, the, the big one, which took some time to recognize both as an entrepreneur and Ben as an ancient investor, that in the end, it's all to do with people. It's not really to do very much else at all. It's okay. having the right people as employees, backing the right people as uh, entrepreneurs. And in the end, it's just a, you know, the wrong people can take a great idea and completely ruin it. And the right people can take actually quite a poor idea relatively and mm. tell you something good. Right. Okay. And is it you? You would say that there's a skill in being able to, I guess, work or, or build the relationships with people in such a way in order to be able to understand whether they're the right people or the wrong people, and that itself is a skill. Yeah, there's a skill there. There are obviously lots of psychometric tests, and there are lots of people hanging around in technology that try and help you do that because. Hiring the wrong person is expensive, as we all know. I mean, yeah. VSS hasn't, Vatican Solution hasn't gone through that process yet. Uh, but I'm sure by a go go, your previous company had plenty yeah. of examples in that. So, hiring, hiring, but backing the wrong entrepreneur is in many ways worse because you are bonded to that entrepreneur. You have a relationship which is the shelving where mm. I've given you the money and you can't give me it back and I can't sell it that's stronger than an employer-employee relationship. And I liken it to being stronger than a marriage, actually. There are, it's easier to get divorced, unfortunately, than it is to actually break the bond between you and I, Steve. Right, because of the investment. Because exactly. Of the legal yeah, yeah, it's not so emotional, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the marriage would be, but it's still a contractual commitment that's very strong. And, and you either got to go, you've got to be able to sell the business to give me my money back and break the bond, or go bust, which also breaks the bond. Well, well, I can assure you, we'll definitely try and do the former rather than. The <laughs> I hope so. Um, so okay. Do it hopefully as well. So the so the um, so for you, a key part is relationships. Understanding those relationships. And then investors, it's not quite the same with employer, employer, employee. But in terms of me as an investor investing in you, it's a it's a trust bond. Mm. You've got to trust that I will behave myself as an investor and follow on and give you some more money and not do things that will sabotage the business or mm. cause you grief. And I've got to trust you, you'll take the money and end up doing something with it that's been done 
you know, prudent. I mean, I, I can say from from in my experience that particularly at the early stage, which is where you know angels operate, they they are investing a lot on um, on faith. Do you know, mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a big bond of trust there that the the people that they're investing in will execute what they will will, will give it an absolute one hundred percent effort to execute what they've said that they will execute. Um, and and there's a lot for an, there's a lot of risk on the table for, for for early stage investors, particularly in health tech and life science, which we can kind of come on to. Yeah. So just on, on that point, you you were sort of lucky and unlucky potentially in that you. Uh, were particularly well connected. So you have brought money in from people you already knew, the, the family, friends and fools, they call it. So where the trust bond, not the fools, obviously, but the trust bond has already been set up, obviously yes. with family, with friends. That's quite unusual. Your okay. shareholder register has got more people you already knew than most entrepreneurs find. Most of that bond has got to be built up over a period of not too many weeks before investment occurs. Okay. And have you seen... Um in your in your without wishing to jump around a bit but have you seen businesses at an early stage where you felt like they they failed in finding investment for that reason they couldn't build that trust up or but but it was a viable you you the the business you thought was a really good idea or had a lot of potential but just they were unable at that very early stage to build enough trust Absolutely, investment. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the numbers are that something that apparently about in the UK about six hundred thousand companies are set up every year. About sixty thousand think they need would like to get some sort of equity investment. As well. Wow, sixty thousand a year are looking for angel. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this might be two years, three years out of date, and about six thousand, and this probably is a year or two out of date, actually get that investment. That's six thousand wow. now, three thousand now. Uh, the crowdfunding, of course, pushed the numbers up. So there are many, many disappointed uh, entrepreneurs who just haven't managed to find find the funding. So, so it's interesting that you um, <clears throat> interesting that you measure you mentioned crowdfunding there. So just so everyone listening understands, crowdfunding. There are lots of platforms out there like Crowdcube, GoFund, GoFundMe. That's another one, isn't it? It's, 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 there's a huge rationalisation going on at the moment. Oh, and consolidation. Yeah, yeah, well, and, and failures. So, for instance, Crowdcube and Cedars have merged into one. Okay. Syndicate Room, which I invested in, is no longer crowdfunding. It's a fund manager. Yeah. So those are the big three. So the big three become one, basically, over the last okay. year or so. And, and that's because of the problems in the business model? Or what? what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The business model, you know, I'm pretty cynical about it from the start. Business model relies clearly in order to keep the company alive with transactions. So this means not with success, but with transactions. So it's a transaction fee. It doesn't yeah, like so they, they're, what they're interested in doing is getting in as much money as possible on an ongoing basis, Correct. irrespective of the value or potential future value of the businesses that are on its platform. And that can lead to some bad behavior, potentially, where they're pushing forward potential deals. I mean, yeah. who knows what it looks like? Because it can take many years to get to success or failure. But pushing forward deals just so they can stay alive. And how much due diligence are you able to do on companies on these platforms? I've not looked into it. We, we <clears throat> A few people talked to us about it when we founded Vital Science Solutions. And, and like you said, we, we were lucky enough to have connections to a range of different investment sources, which is obviously wonderful. We, we consider ourselves to be very lucky. Um, so I didn't look at it into too much detail, but I, I, I've heard, you know, there are obviously some absolute, fr- from a company's perspective, there are some things that have done extremely well on it, like Go Henry, for example. 
they they um, which is actually run by an ex Go alumni called Alex Zavoda, who's done phenomenally well on there. I think they've raised tens or tens or twenty, you know, million something like that. But the, but from an investor perspective, I've actually heard some pretty dicey, sharp behavior or things that have happened that have been <laughs> less than ideal. It turns out. So yeah. you know, what's the kind of due diligence like? For investors, on yeah, investors, I wouldn't like to go into uh, what's happening on that. There's, there's an equity crowdfunding website. It's called Equity Fancy Equity Crowdfunding. Got a guy called Rob who does a lot of investigations to that. But the due diligence, to answer your question, the due diligence is lower, lighter, clearly than if I, I or people, people like me were involved. And although I do recommend it in the book, if you want to become an angel, do a bit on the platform because you'll okay. understand a bit about so the that, that, That's your book, The Invested Investor, or is it the second yeah. book? It, uh, the first book. The first book. Be, hopefully helping angels become either non-angels or be, become better angels. I, I can say from a, as, a, as a founder, it is a, both books are excellent and both books, I believe, are available right now on Amazon? Yes, exactly, in, in uh, audio book, Kindle and, and printed form. So just back to your question. So the due diligence is light. It's not done by the platform because otherwise they'll end they, up- They take risk. They take risk, exactly. So it tends to be done individually, which is fine, which is the same for angel investing. We are, even if somebody's deal leading, everybody else is responsible for their own due diligence. That's a very important point. You can never blame anybody except, except yourself if you invest in a business that fails. But this is done, and the best way for somebody who's looking at investing through traveling is to monitor the um, uh, the chat or the uh, you know the, and the people who ask questions and get replies tend to be the more sophisticated ones. Right, which is the same as with an angel group. That's how I learned was following other people who knew what they were doing basically okay. and learning from them. It's not you can't codify angel investing because you're investing in a human being with a business, obviously, uh, which has got a long way to run. It's not possible to say but follow these parameters and you will succeed yeah because uh, well we can switch on to health tech in a second which where where i think this question is particularly relevant but early stage investing often happens pre-revenue often yeah Yeah. most of the time angel investment might be pre-revenue or or sort of on that borderline so you you don't have those metrics to say well you know we normally invest at 5x revenue or you know there's that doesn't exist because there, there is nothing at that point and i think that 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 for me is massively more um accelerated in health tech mm. so let's talk about as you see it what what for, for you how do you define health tech or healthcare yeah. or digital healthcare or what do you view it like as an investor Yes. Um, so I, the answer is I don't know. I know it's a change. It's a moving uh, playing field. Sounds a terrible analogy. It's, uh, there are a number of terms that float around in the sector. So I would probably define it as something where the outcome is to the mental or physical well-being of a human being or potentially an animal. So, okay. you know, so both, you know, they're both yeah. sentient things on this planet. And that, so I went through my, my investments. I made about 75 investments and 14 of them fit in that category. Okay. Um, but just out of interest, the, um, <laughs> which we'll come back on to something later in, but later on, none of those have exited. And this is over a decade or so, period. Mm-hmm. some are quite recent. And two have failed. So proportionately, that's only what twenty uh, two out of fourteen, twenty eight percent, or something like that. Yeah. Sorry, 
Whereas if you take the, all the other investments, which amount to about 60 of them, I've had um, 37% of either, so a third or so of either a 40%, no, 25, <laughs> right, 25. a bit of paper. Do you want me to write this down? <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're all on my website, petercowley.org. The point I'm trying to make is that the exits are happening less frequently and the failures are happening less as well. Okay. And this is because, A, it takes longer from the point you first invest to get to somewhere, whether that's product, uh, but it also takes longer to fail. And this is because it takes a lot, the journeys take a long time. And why? And so let's talk about that. Why does it take health tech or healthcare businesses longer to either succeed or fail? Well, it, it's just, there's a spectrum here, clearly, between drug discovery, yeah. where the product market fit takes rather a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but I would say with drug discovery, so drug discovery for everyone listening is, is the, the creation of new drugs from scratch, which could be, for example, the COVID vaccine, but it could be literally any other type of, of drug or medicine um, that, that happens. Um, but I would argue that that process is extremely well-defined there is a path to follow for drug discovery that's really well laid out, do you think? Yeah, but the, but the cycle length of change is so long, you yeah. know, getting into patients, getting them tested and everything. Whereas if you take, and the example I use is the buy button on Amazon, okay. actually changing that colour yeah. can be done and tested within seconds, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. addition might take weeks, but the actual change and seeing what happened, they can A-B test that. You can't do anything like that in healthcare. Well, no, you can't. You absolutely the title can't. lengths are very long. And secondly, of course, there's a huge amount of regulatory approval required, yeah. which both takes data and takes time because the processes are slow. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and obviously the risk is high anyway. I mean, the, the drugs can fail. So that's why it takes a long time. And of course, time costs money because time means paying salaries. Yeah, and, you need, and, and also in the, in the very, very high, you know, high tech, you know, like I agree with you, there's a spectrum from, you know, uh, on the one end, you might have an app that lets you log your diet for example, which is really just like data entry and that might have a nice slick user interface and things like that, but it's not, is it, but, and then on the other end, you have stuff that's really life science which is drug discovery, which is like gene editing therapeutics, mm. which is really quite, which is absolute bleeding edge, mm. um, but takes a lot longer. Yeah. Um, because so, of yeah, so issues. To go back to spec, you've got mm. one that might take a decade or more, to get into into a human being, and you've got the shorter ones, which like the apps, which will, and and they are really in principle no difference, depending on the the how the control loop works. So you're collecting data from human beings. What are you feeding back to them? You're feeding back something which just is a simple behavioural change. That's probably no different from a game, effectively. You yeah. just need customers. You need to be able to get it out there. You need to find customers. You need to get the customers to pay for it. And then you'll start growing the business, and then we'll end up with either something which is generating enough revenue that doesn't need investment or will get to some form of exit. So, yeah, they should, in principle, be no longer than any other form of app. But as soon as you get in this control of anything that's going to affect the human in a way that needs regulating, the whole thing goes out by so, several so years. So if it takes longer and it takes more money, what, 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 is it less attractive to early stage investors? Or what, what is it? Yeah. What, what yeah, it sounds worse. 
yeah, uh, ignoring the risk factor of it might fail at one of the phases or something like that. The two things that really matter to an early stage investor is, is there going to be enough capital available, not just from us, but from the whole system to get to the point of some form of exit? And because it takes a long time, it's going to get out of the reach of the pockets of most angels at some point and will need VCs coming in. Will that VC money be able to come in? And secondly, which is slightly technical, is that the VCs come in with some level of preference over the, over the types of shares they've got. And if something goes wrong in that journey, the preferences can actually squash the original investment. Right. So, so let's just break that down a little bit. So a VC is a venture capital firm. So that means basically there's the sort of the, you know, I know that they've, they've, they've sort of entered general parlance now because of, you know, rock star investors and, you know, things like Uber and all of you know, Deliveroo, all of whom are heavily backed by VCs, um, which is kind of the acronym, the venture capital. And what you're talking about there with, with preference is that they have conditions on the money that, that is invested. And often those, those conditions are at the expense of early shareholders. Well, they're only at expense if something goes wrong in the journey. So preferences, it's a downside protection generally. So if the journey is, and, and we buy in the UK at least, we buy ordinary shares, which are the same as the entrepreneur has. It's yeah. somewhat different in other countries, certainly very different in the States, where even the angels are venture capitalists, even they have a preference over the shareholder shares. They're certainly oh, wow. the shares. So if it's going up in a, a route which is steady and positive that's fine but as soon as it, there's a hiccup because you know phase one phase two fails and oh, fails the first round it needs more money and then the valuation comes down and that's when the press starts to have an effect on the ordinaries there's an example here in came to guy i know quite well who sold his business for 100 million and wow. ended up with nothing after 11 years no yeah exactly He's how did that happen did it was the, did did, it, did he raise money at a valuation that exceeded 100 million and it, he ended up... No, no, not at all. Actually, the last round was less than that. It's just that wow. the, the overall preference stacks was, were... He oh. raised your six different preference rounds and the final exit was actually just covered the old everything back in the That's back. brutal. No, it's terrible. Poor guy. <laughs> exactly. He started again. He's on his fourth business now. He's learned quite a lot from that one. I would imagine. <laughs> that sounds like an absolutely brutal experience. <laughs> Wow. Anyway, so, but don't don't assume that all VCs cause this causes to happen. It's actually more likely the company will fail altogether, in which case VCs will also lose their money. Yeah, but it is that you get this funny interview. So, so, if the investment landscape is is bumpier and the outcomes are less certain, the, there there has to be some kind of risk reward payoff. Otherwise, no one would invest in health tech or healthcare. So what is it from your Well, again, this depends on where you're on the spectrum. So I'm, it's on my website, so I can talk about it. I'm investing in a company called Exonate. Exonate? E-X-O-N-A-T-E. And there's some of this in the public domain. Obviously, I know more than I can say. But we went in. It was a drug discovery company. And I normally wouldn't do this because I don't understand biochemistry or anything. But Drug discovery is not your thing. No, I did know the CEO. I know the chair. They're basically after five years. And it was, it was, and still is working on wet macular degeneration. This is where the retina uh, starts to uh, destroy due to blood supply, apparently. Okay. And this, this is instead of the, the the gold standard, which is a needle in the eye, once wow. a few weeks. This is droplets. Can you okay. imagine the social outcome from this? Never mind the financial outcome. So, and and there's some complicated things there. One, you've got to get 
the molecule through the eye. When it's through the eye, it's got to do some good and everything. We're several years into the journey. The potential outcome here, and one of the big farmers is now on the journey with us and, and funding wow. a lot of the process, is, is huge. So the risk reward will pay for itself. There's still a lot that can go wrong. It's, it's, it's in humans at the moment, but only in small volumes of humans. Who knows? So, but it's, and, and that was a lucky one because the investment, not lucky, <laughs> sort of plan, the, uh, the original people knew this journey would be like this. So they could actually work on the basis that we would try ensure that the original founders and angels actually would have a positive benefit. Right. Uh, but generally, I don't go on those journeys at all. And of course, as I said before, it's, it's a spectrum. And at the far end, which I don't do too many of either, it's, uh, no, I've got one called Psyomics, which is... Um, uh, yeah, that's a mental, mental, like a, a diagnostic marker for mental health. Exactly. It's, it's particularly at the moment, always niches, uh, in a, a bipolar disorder. Right. Um, and it's a combination of a biomarker and a, an app. Uh, and, and, and so there's a possibility for biomarker. It doesn't work because it's still under test within the university laboratory here, uh, Cambridge University Laboratory. Then, then the, the, the rest of it, which has got a huge amount of patient data now, will actually be the one that turns into the, the positive benefit. Right. So, yeah, it varies. And that will be a shorter lifetime, but it's still got some regulatory because in the end, what you're trying to do is alter behavior of some form. And uh, right. this how is by naturally is, is regulated. Well, that's why we got into doing you know vital sign solutions, which which is why we're doing PocDoc. You know, is to try to um, help people improve their risk of getting cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes by having access to tests, having an assessment, and having behaviour change all within the the PocDoc app. So yes, I completely agree with that. And and I think from our perspective, we're, we're the, the problems that you're solving within healthcare and health tech are almost by definition global problems, i.e. they exist everywhere. So the, the, the market size, the total available market size for these things is, is, is enormous. I mean, it's in theory, everybody. So cardiovascular disease is the single biggest killer in the UK and type two diabetes, the NHS spends 20 billion pounds a year treating the symptoms of type 2 diabetes, which is completely preventable. So the numbers get very, very, very big. Um, but what you're saying, which I think is, I, I would agree with, is that the, the risk along the way is, is higher. And what you can't do to your point around Amazon, which is something that obviously, you know, in my previous roles, it was very easy, is just to get something up, functional, get some customers, see what happens, test it. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, you stop it. That doesn't really work in health tech because of the, well, the, quite rightly, the regulatory issues, right? You can't be putting products out there or services out there that have a, a risk to patients. Um, and then that regulatory is really requires you to develop um, an extremely, extremely high level of clinical evidence a lot of the time. So you, you can't just kind of, you know, in the words of Mark Zuckerberg, you can't just sort of, you know, go fast and break things. Mm. It, just, it just doesn't work in health tech because if you do that, you know, you, you either hurt people or you do what Theranos did, you know, which is, I think, probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest story of the last sort of 10 to 20 years of, of um, or that I know of, of somebody or a group of people trying to run a health tech business like a tech business, hmm. which was to, to claim you had something which you don't have instead of doing the hard yards and actually building it. And I think what's interesting, 
Yeah, it's that's slightly unfair because not all tech businesses do things, promise things that they can't do. No, 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 but but uh, yeah, that's sorry, I I take your point on that one. What I mean is that you're able to create an extremely high number of iterations of a product and iterate as you go. Yeah, obviously, that's still a piece of Theranos is still a piece of hardware, which has got a much longer cycle. And I'm quite well known here in Cambridge for doing hardware because my background's hardware, but many angels won't touch it because of this cycle time. And if it's hardware, it's got a working capital requirement, it's got a supply chain time. So it's the agility of change is much, much slower in hardware than it is in software. Back to the buy button. So can I just segue just there, or maybe hijack slightly, that of course the the hijack away. The hijack the what's happened and happening and happened and will happen much more is an overlap between life sciences, health tech, and data. So right. this is basically ICT, IT, whatever it used to be called or is called. And you pull those together, and then you can have faster cycles. So you're collecting data, you're analyzing data, you know, using machine learning or this this term AI, which I think it's been hijacked. Yeah, it gets bandied around quite a lot when it really is. Behind that. So you've got genomics, biochemistry, data science, machine learning or deep learning. You put that together and you've got a, a new breed of stuff, which is hugely important. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily need to put so much time into the, the hurdle of checking. I mean, repurposing drugs is a great example. Yes. My, my wife works for a company called BioWisdom. You won't have heard of it in Cambridge, formed about 16, 17 years ago, raised well over 10 million, closed in the end because it was probably a decade too early. Okay. And this was taking data from public and private databases, pharmaceutical companies, and trying to work out if this drug, I mean, Viagra's a great example there, isn't it? Mm. It, it wasn't being designed. No, to it was designed for cardiac issues. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, yes, and it was just because of some miners in South Wales. So there's, um, there's a company called Benevolent AI, which you might have heard of, which is yeah, exactly absolutely. what you're talking about, which is yeah. scraping the, I mean, got terabytes of data about drugs to see where they could be reapplied. And actually, my co-founder, Kieran, um, that was partly what she did when she worked for, for Big Pharma, was, was looking at orphan drugs, looking at repurposing drugs. And it's a huge, huge field, hugely. Yeah, because you've got, you've got it, you're using a drug that's had efficacy, well, no, efficacy is less important, but safety testing done out already. So mm-hmm. you can effectively reuse something from the past in terms of the trials, which will, of course, shorten the time it will take to get to the human body. Yeah. So, um, no, I think that that's hugely, hugely interesting. Um, and benevolent AI seems to be doing some, some mm-hmm. unbelievable work in that space. So um, what does 2021 look like, do you think, for you <laughs> as an investor or for investors in general? Or what's your kind of yeah, about well, the future? The two major changes that we've noticed, one is that uh, new investments have been more difficult because, as I said, at early stage anyway, where there's no data, you can't base it on the metrics of customer acquisition, customer acquisition cost, lifetime value. You can't measure it on you know, numbers or anything like that. So you're basically investing in a human being or, or a team. Mm. It's been very difficult to do that through the glass screen of a, a Zoom. Do you, find it, do, you, do you think that the Zoom issue, or however you want to talk about it, as a result of COVID, is that going to be a block on early stage investing because you have to meet the people? It, it has been. been. Yeah, and in fact, it, when we had the release to a large extent of lockdown during the summer, at least if we could meet in cafes, we could meet uh, going for walks, etc. That made things easier because, as I said, at the very early stage, we're investing in the human being with a business plan in principle, and that's yeah. all. 
um, skill set. So it's a matter of getting to know the the entrepreneur and entrepreneurial team. And it's really difficult to work out the dynamics between one or more of an entrepreneurial founding team when they're both in separate rooms in different little screens. You don't see body language. You don't see. Yeah, that must be really difficult. Time. You can't so, really assess the chemistry. Exactly. And because of the potential macroeconomic effects of you know, all the debt that's floating around that we just haven't a clue what it's going to look like, the people of angel, investors, angels and VCs have tended to concentrate more on their existing portfolio and okay. less new things. So it's actually been a huge, long hiatus, really, for many people in raising finance. They've sort of had to wait and it's just getting worse and worse. I mean, here in the UK, they're talking about basically another national lockdown by the end of the week uh, or Sure, or it's some tiered, but it'll feel like a full lockdown. So this is just going to make it more difficult. Of course, there, there are always silver linings to any change. It's difficult to be that accurate, but I, I had, had to go to the GP a couple of days ago, uh, fairly urgently, and the experience I had was massively better than it was pre-COVID. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was. How it was well, it's because I, I could, A, he was willing to, it was happy to hear in this case, he was willing to do a, a voice, just voice, no video, consultation initially. And I, okay. that happened within an hour of me ringing up because he, I, I didn't have to go there and sit in the queue for anybody. And because at that point, he needed to do some physical manipulation of something on me mm. to diagnose I was in within an hour then. And, and, right, and this yeah. isn't because it, it's anything super urgent. It's not as if, you know, my legs fall off or something. Okay, like good to, good to know. <laughs> it's, just, it, it's not something I'm particularly worried about. But yeah, I mean, and you could take blood. You had to take blood as well. And you can't do that remotely. We can't take our own blood yet, can we? So, well, you, well, no, but, you know, with PopDoc, you can do a finger prick. And you can do a test. You can do that. But, you, but these were files of blood. Yeah, I mean, if you need to have a venous blood, <laughs> you need to have someone to be able to do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so do, you, do you buy into any of these kind of uh, online symptom checkers, the Babylons, the Ada Health? Like, what's your view on that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, there's de definitely a, a, a market there. But uh, my, and I'm not an investor in any of these. I know I, ha I have got an account, or rather, I've got a free account with Babylon. And I know Ada through a, a friend here in, in Cambridge who's on the advisory board of that, um, is that the experience I had was so quick in this situation that it makes me wonder whether Babylon in terms of service delivery using human beings mm. really is, is necessary. You've got one on one in the UK, you know, the, the, the triage over the telephone. Um, so what it will have is to replace this Googling of your own symptoms yes. with some sort of data-driven decision process. So this is the concept of AI ML, making some sort of diagnosis. Now, in the end, I think we'd all like initially, it's only for the time being, to have voice and a human being making diagnoses. But if you take, for instance, um, breast cancer screening as an example of where machine learning is almost certainly caught up with humans and yeah. will go ahead of them, might even have got ahead of them already, that by processing, because it's a visual thing where you've got poor data and how many, I mean, the 60-year-old oncologist has been looking at these things still has seen a fraction of the number yeah. of the... Of, of, and there's, of, there's a lot of these um, ML, so machine learning, AI startups or, or, or companies focused on different types of cancer now. You know, exactly. Yeah, and then they just they need data. They need data of 
what they've been looking at in the same way as the human beings looked at, and they need data of outcomes. Yeah. And if you put those together in enough in principle, and I know this is sacrilegious to some extent, both to the medical profession and to probably quite a lot of the listeners here, mm. but it still feels that we're on a journey where the uh, computer in the end will be able to make better decisions. Or it was certainly, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's definitely, I mean, I remember when Babylon first launched its sort of symptom checker i know they call it something else that's a lot more grand obviously but they they published some data that said it was as good or better than a gp which caused a huge amount of furore at the time um and this was a few years ago but rightly so because it probably wasn't at that point and so you've got a, a stack of things there. You've got people's emotional connection with actually visiting the GP and that relationship. You've got the GPs trying to protect their own jobs, of course. Yeah. You know, it was too early, probably. But I'm just saying, and we're on a journey that feels like we'll get to the point where this is the case. Uh, a, a friend here in Cambridge was CEO and founder of CMR, Cambridge Medical Robotics. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a competitor to the, um, uh, what's it called, the big, the big one, uh, I just can't remember the name of it. Uh, but it looks like he's heading in a direction. I interviewed him from one of my podcasts, and he wouldn't answer this clearly. But it looks like it's on a on a, a pathway to get to the. Yeah, I mean, you might want to interview Martin. Yeah, just, yeah. Got, just got his CBE actually recently um, here in the UK. Um, it, um, it looks like we're on a pathway to where the robots will be able to do autonomously do simple operations. You know. Wow. Well, that, that, I think that, unfortunately, that is all of our time. We're up. But it was good. I mean, what, what's interesting is that, that, that this end piece, we've ended on the, on the right note because my next guest, um, which is on the, the, the Tuesday the 5th at 1 p.m., my next guest is Daniel Rook, and he is the founder of Start Codon. So Start Codon is a Cambridge-based, very cutting-edge um, tech accelerator, health tech accelerator that's really focused on really like gene editing. So editing genes in order to create new therapeutics, new drugs for some of the most widespread diseases, particularly forms of aggressive cancer. So this is like the very high end of things. And I'm sure that he's got a great view on, on what we were just talking about. So Peter, thank you so much. Um, just before we go, do you want to, so it's investedinvestor.com. And the books are available on Amazon. I would. I, I, is that correct? Yeah. So just the two books. Are, one is aimed at angels to become better angels, but in fact, mostly read by entrepreneurs who want to work out how to raise money from angels and how to work with us. Because you know, obviously, we need to work. It's a dynamic situation there. And the second one, founders founders, written by about a hundred founders uh, all over the place who've put snippets of information that we've analysed to help earlier stage founders make less mistakes because in the end you know you're making mistakes we're all making mistakes yeah. in life. you can make less of them you've got more chance of some sort of level of success and the mistakes okay. you can make like we we're talking earlier on hiring a very senior salesperson is a really fraught um uh, process where it's almost impossible to get the right person you know it won't solve that in the book but at least it'll uncover some of the things that want you to think about Perfect. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the Christmas show. And um, maybe we can get you back on another time because I feel like there's a lot more for us to talk about. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio.